This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Financial Services Incorporated. UBS Financial Services does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. John Hancock Investment Management and UBS are not affiliated. So welcome to this edition of Taking Care of Your Financial Future. I am Bruce Lanzer, a Senior Retirement Plan Consultant with UBS in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And today's topic is the ins and outs of Medicare coverage. I'll be speaking with Ron Bezos of John Hancock Investment Management. Ron is a director at John Hancock and brings over 20 years experience in wealth management, investment management, and retirement planning. Good afternoon, Ron, and thanks for making the time to share your insights with us. Yeah, good afternoon, Bruce. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to talk about this Medicare topic, which is something that we hear about all the time and, in my opinion, very widely misunderstood. So I'm glad we're here today to really break it down so everyone gets a better understanding of Medicare and how it works and operates. Yeah, you're right on there. So let me ask you, Ron, though, as you said, it's very misunderstood, really a hot topic for people you know, nearing retirement, thinking about retiring. When did Medicare first become available to Americans? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's important before you and I take a step forward to really take a step back and understand how Medicare came into being so we can really kind of wrap our heads around how important this really is. So Medicare, as we know it today, was established back in July 1965 by President Johnson. Now, why that was so important was because at the time, there was really no standardized form of health care for retirees. And think about that for a minute. Think about folks who, you know, work their whole lives and them and their families had group insurance through their employer. And then they go to retire and be in their golden years. And all of a sudden they don't have a, you know, standardized form of health care. And as a result of that, we only had about 50% of retirees even have health care. And to make it worse, about 8 million seniors were living in poverty because they couldn't afford the medical bills. So, This was a big, big deal. And although President Johnson signed this into law, several presidents before him tried to get something signed so folks would have the coverage when they retired. You know, really started with Roosevelt, you know, JFK, he tried unsuccessfully. And President Truman really tried to push the envelope forward. So as a result of the hard work, you know, when President Johnson signed this into law, he gave President Truman and his wife cards one and two. And then we saw 19 million Americans enroll in Medicare. Now, when we fast forward to today, Bruce, there's about 64 million Americans enrolled in Medicare. This is huge, and it's going to get bigger. Mm-hmm. The forecast of that by 2030, which is scary to say isn't that far away, right. there's going to be about 72 million Americans enrolled, and it's going to be about 20% of the U.S. budget, which is astronomical to think about all the things as a country we spend money on, whether it's, you know, COVID relief, Ukraine, war effort, it's all, all of that. The fact that this is, is 20% is a big, big deal. So I think it's important for us to, you know, really kind of take a step back, understand the, the magnitude of, of Medicare and how big the scope of it really is. It's interesting. Truman had cards one and two. Did not know that. Now, there seems to be, you know, a lot of moving parts with Medicare. Maybe we can discuss what those different parts are and what's covered under each. 
Yeah, we can certainly do that. I think it's important, you know, to cover each one. And we're going to do that. Most folks have heard of the parts of Medicare. It's A, B, C, and D. And we're going to talk next about what each one covers. So when we talk about Part A, that covers everything that takes place in a hospital. Okay? So think about that as room and board within the walls of a hospital. And it's going to cover any sort of, you know, inpatient hospital stay that we have, any sort of skilled nursing and medication, you know, blood transfusions, hospice, all of those medical procedures we would get within the hospital walls. That's Part A. Part B covers everything outside of that. So what's going to fall into Part B is any sort of, you know, routine doctor visit we go to, any lab work or surgery that we have, anything that's, you know, preventative care or, you know, home health equipment, medical equipment in your house, all of those types of things would fall under Part B. And what's nice about Part B is the government pays for 100% of the cost of anything considered preventative. So by preventative, they mean things such as, you know, a flu shot or the COVID vaccine, annual physical with your doctor, right? A colonoscopy, all of those things, they cover 100%. What's important to know is anything that they don't consider preventative, they pay for 80% of it, which means that we're on the hook for that 20%. And that can get really expensive. And if we have time later, we certainly want to talk about maybe ways we can plan for that. But what I wanted to do now is really talk about original Medicare as what we get for benefits under the government. So when you hear original Medicare, that's parts A and B. Okay. Those are the only parts we get through social security. Part C and part D is not mandatory and you would get those through a private insurer. So when you hear part C, that is synonymous with Medicare Advantage plans, something I'm sure everyone has heard about. All that's, you know, part C. Think about part C is getting all of your coverage under one roof, under one umbrella, almost like a travel agent, right? Where you get the flight, the hotel, and the rental car all into one. So that's part C. And then moving on to part D is anything that covers your prescription medication. So any drug-related needs that folks would have, anything, you know, CVS card, all of that type of stuff falls under part D. Okay, so those are the four parts of it. And I'm glad we got to step-by-step break those down. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have a better understanding than I did before. So when are you eligible to actually receive Medicare and how do you do it? So you're eligible to receive Medicare when you're 65 years old, okay? And for folks who are already receiving Social Security benefits prior to age 65, the good news for them is they don't have to do anything at all. Enrollment's going to be automatic because the government's going to automatically assume that because they're on Social Security, they're going to need Medicare. And the way that would work is a month or two before their 65th birthday month, they're going to receive their Medicare card in the mail. Okay. Mm -hmm. For folks who are not on Social Security, still a pretty easy process. And the way they would do that is go right through the Social Security website. So SSA.gov only takes about, you know, 10 to 15 minutes to do so. And when they would do that is dependent on their birthday month. Okay, when they're going to turn 65. The way it works initially is individuals have a seven month period to enroll initially. So let's take for an example someone whose birthday is in May. Okay, let's say that person's birthday is May 20th. That person's window would actually begin in February. Okay, so Mm -hmm. they can enroll February, March, April. And if they enroll prior to their birthday month, the benefits would kick in on the first day of the birthday month. In this example, it would kick in, you know, May 1st. 
And then they could enroll on their birthday month and then three months after that. And then if they do so, the benefits would simply kick in the first day of the following month, right? So say they decided to enroll in June at some point, July 1st, the benefits would kick in. You know, before we move on, I think it's worth noting that, you know, you don't have to enroll at age 65. You know, a lot of times people work past that. So the way that would work is say you had someone that works until they're 68, okay? And they were on their group benefits the whole time. Once that person retires and they're no longer on their group benefits, they're going to have their own unique eight-month window of when they can enroll in Medicare. So you don't have to do it at 65. That's just the first time you're eligible to receive Medicare is at that age. Okay. So you mentioned like if, if I'm still working at 68, I can enroll when I retire. What if somebody's already retired, say at 65, and they miss the seven-month window? Yeah, it's a great question. So if they miss the seventh-month window, it's, it's okay. You know, for whatever reason, annual, original Medicare annual election period is in the first quarter of the year. Okay. So they could enroll from, you know, January 1 to March 31st every single year if they happen to miss that. So think of it this way. You have your initial seven-month window, okay? If someone misses that first quarter every year, they can enroll in original Medicare, and then if someone works past 65 to whatever age it would be, once they go off the group benefits, they're now eligible. They have an eight-month window okay. you know, to enroll in Medicare that way. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Okay. So the okay, next thing to talk about is like some of the costs surrounding Medicare coverage. Let's give people a sense of what it might cost them. Yeah, I'll definitely cover that. And, and I think what's nice about Medicare is... You know, when we pay the premiums, it works very similar to group insurance as we have it now through our private insurer, right? Through mm-hmm. our employer where we pay the monthly premium, right? And then we have co-pays and co-insurance as we go on. So Medicare does work very similar in that fashion. And what's nice about Part A is if we have paid our FICA taxes, because we know a portion of that goes into Social Security, the other portion goes into Medicare. So if we've worked for at least 10 years right, and we've accumulated 40 quarters of work history, then Part A is actually considered paid up and it costs us nothing at all. Okay. The government pays for Part A. Sometimes you'll see folks ask me, they'll say, hey, you know, I have 30, 39 quarters of work history. You know, should I get a part-time job? And I say absolutely they should because Part A will cost them about $250 a month if they have between 30 and 39 quarters of work history. And it's about, it's about $500 a month, Bruce, for folks who don't, you know, who have less than 30 quarters. So, and that's just part A. So it can get real expensive, you know, and really be advantageous to make sure that you have that 40 quarters of work history. And, you know, I tell folks, get a part-time job. It doesn't matter how much money you're making. What matters is that you're, you know, paying into the system. You're paying the FICA taxes and all of that. But it is worth knowing that, you know, there's a few ways you could qualify through a spouse. And the first one is that your spouse would have to be of eligible age for Social Security. It doesn't have to be Getting it just has to be eligible for it, and you would have to be married at least one year. Okay, if you check those boxes, you could get Part A through a spouse. And believe it or not, you could actually get it through an ex-spouse. You know, you could be divorced and get it through an ex-spouse as long as you're still single. Your ex-spouse is, again, of eligible Social Security age, and, you know, that individual would need to be married for at least 10 years. Okay. Okay, so all of those would, you know, allow someone to get it through an ex-spouse. And then the third way I wanted to talk about would be in a widow situation where you were married at least nine months prior to date of death and you're still single, 
then you could qualify through a deceased spouse as well. So that's part A, okay? Next, I want to talk about part B and D premiums, how those work. Okay. I'm going to skip part C for the moment because I think it's important for us to maybe cover that later in this discussion. So for 2023, the part B premium is $164.90 a month. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's a part B premium. For folks who are on social security, it gets taken right off the top of their check. As they know, they don't have to do anything at all. If someone's not yet collecting social security, then those people are actually billed on a quarterly basis, which is confusing because people think it's monthly. It's not, it's quarterly. And they could go right to that SSA.gov website, right? The social security mm-hmm. website set up easy pay and they could set it up for that. The next thing I want to talk about is something that some individuals might have heard of. It's called Irma. It's for high income earners. It came out in 2007. I can tell you no one was happy when this came out. And basically what this means is that depending on your adjusted gross income, basically the more money you make, the more money you pay your part B and your part D premiums, right? So for an example, let's take someone who's retiring this year in 2023. The way it was that the IRS would do a two-year look back on your tax returns. So someone retiring this year, they're going to look back at their 2021 tax returns, and it's going to be based on tax brackets. So say you have a joint couple, okay, who files joint, and they make $350,000 a year, okay? Well, they're not paying the one sixty four ninety dollars each. They're paying a lot more than that. I can tell you how much they're paying. It's $428.60 a month. And that's each of them. That's not a household. So Irma can get real expensive for this. And there's some ways that, you know, if we think about it beforehand, we can actually do a little bit of tax planning. Okay. You know, what I mean by that is some of the exceptions that the IRS might grant would be, you know, if someone was to file an appeal, it's called form SSA-44. The appeal is something people do all the time. doesn't cost anything to do it. And what you'd want to show the IRS is a decrease in income. That could be the way of someone retiring. You know, you could lower your hours work, not making as much. You could be divorced, widowed, things like that, right? The government probably would grant the appeal and adjust the IRMA accordingly. Some things to be aware of, and this goes back into a little bit of tax planning, just to be, you know, conscious of, is something like a large IRA distribution, 401k distribution, you know, inheritance, selling a boat or beachfront property, like things like that, the government probably would not grant someone the earn appeal. So if someone knows that they're a couple of years, you know, outside of retirement age and enrolling in Medicare, it might be advantageous just to be aware of that two year look back to avoid any sort of, you know, earn when we can. Right. But again, you know, the good news for this is it doesn't last with you forever. It is the two year look back. So if someone was to you know, receive an inheritance this year. They're not going to get that every single year. And eventually that would roll off. Right. So that's part B. Next, I want to talk about part D. And again, this is not, you know, mandatory. It is, you know, covering all types of prescription medication that you have. And the way the part D would work is folks would pick a plan in an area that they live in. Okay. It's about 30 to 35 plans you can choose depending on where you live all the way from a range of seven bucks a month to $200 a month, depending on how much, you know, medication needs someone has. And the national average for that is $31 and 50 cents a month. Now, what's really important before we move on is remember at the beginning, I said that RD isn't mandatory. Right. It's true, but it doesn't mean that Medicare doesn't track your enrollment. In fact, if you enroll in part B and do not enroll in part D, 
and you do so at a later time, there's actually a penalty for that, Bruce. So okay. The penalty <laughs> for that is 1% each month that you enrolled in Part B and you did not enroll in Part D. Okay. And let me give everyone an example of what I mean by that. Yeah. Say you have an individual that's 65 years old, healthy as can be, and they go on Medicare and they say, well, I don't have any medication needs. Why in the world would I spend any money on Part D? I don't take any medication. Okay. That right. makes sense. Yeah. Then, you know, we'll fast forward five years and that person's 70 and they become sick and now they have medication needs and they enroll in a Part D plan. Okay. The way that the government would look at that is that would be five years or 60 months, right? That would be a 60% penalty on top of their Part D premium that they would have to pay that never goes away. Wow. Because the government, <laughs> I know, a lot of people do not know that. Yeah. So what I encourage folks to do is say, hey, look, you can change your plan every year. So if you become ill and you need more medication needs, you can change your plan every fall. What might make sense is for someone to get the cheapest plan in the area that they live in to at least get into a plan, you know, at least pay a Part D, even though they might not have a lot of medication needs, you know, seven, eight, $10 a month is a lot less than some of those penalties that could come into play right. later. So that's for sure. Um, I think it's important for everyone to know that. And before we move on, I would like to or not like to bring up Irma again, because it also comes into play on the Part D premiums on the same tax brackets as Part B. They're synonymous with that. I guess the good news is if you file the appeal I talked about for Part B and it gets approved, it's automatically approved for Part D as well. They don't have to go ahead and do a second approval. The flip side of that's true as well, or if they deny you for Part B, they're going to automatically deny you for Part D. Okay. okay. That's how the premiums work. Next, what I want to quickly do is go through what we call cost sharing, okay? Because I think the misnomer exists out there that a lot of folks are like, you know, hey, I paid my FICA taxes, I paid into the system. Now I'm the government's responsibility. Now, uh, you know, the government can pay for all this, which is true, but it's important for everyone to be aware of just how much some of the different services that we get can add up so people can really plan for when they retire to plan for this, like sure. they don't plan for anything else. So when we look at Part A, the deductible for Part A, again, that's inpatient stay is $1,600, okay, off the bat. So say I, you know, in New England, if you can't tell by the Boston accent, I live in Boston, and I slip in that ball on ice in February, and I have an overnight hospital stay. They're going to whack me with that 1600 deductible off the bat, okay? Then 60 days in hospital, I don't pay for any of that. But on day 61, folks pay $400 a day, daily copay. 30 days after that, that doubles to $800 a day. Then after day 150 in a hospital, we're paying all the costs for that, okay? And that can be really expensive. What they do cover is the first three pints of blood, and 20 days in a skilled nursing facility. They're gonna pay for some of days 21 to 100, only $200 a day, then after day 100, that's completely on us. So again, what I just talked about is the base model that the government covers, but you know, depending on how injured someone is going into a hospital, it can certainly you know, get expensive as mm -hmm. well. So that's the part A. Moving on to part B, the deductible is $226, and we talked about them covering 100% of the cost for anything preventive, but then we also talked about Medicare paying 80% of anything outside of that. And that puts all of us on the hook for that other 20% coinsurance, and there's no cap on that, okay? We pay that 20% forever. So it can get really expensive, and it's important you know, for us just to plan for any of those medical costs that we might incur in the future. Right, definitely. So it's good you know, that Medicare covers you know, a lot of the costs, as you mentioned. 
But, you know, again, we potentially have a lot of costs out of pocket. How can we plan and prepare for those other costs that aren't covered under Medicare? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great question because, you know, when we look at, for example, what I just said, Bruce, I mean, it covers 80 percent, but 20 percent can be real expensive. I mean, someone has, you know, cancer and needs chemotherapy. I mean, think about how expensive that can be. I mean, that can people didn't plan that can, that can wipe someone's financial retirement plan as well. So, Definitely. So there's two ways folks can plan for that. We're going to talk about both. And the first one is something called a Medicare supplement plan or a Medigap plan. And what you get with that is it's more expensive, okay? So you're paying a higher premium, but then what you're getting in return is a lot less out-of-pocket expenses. So you're getting, you know, less cost sharing on Mm -hmm. that. So that's more, you know, the gold standard of coverage. I would probably encourage folks who can afford that route to take it, you know, we'll call it the Cadillac of coverage. But they do have another option, okay? And a much, you know, more cost-effective, cheaper option. The second route will be going into what we talked about before, which is a Medicare Advantage plan, a Part C plan. What you get with that is a lot lower premium, or even most of the plans have zero premium at all, but you are faced with higher cost sharing and more unexpected out-of-pocket costs, okay? Mm-hmm. So those are the two options. And let's dig into both of those a little deeper, because I really think it's important for folks to understand you know, how different the two of these behave. So we're first going to talk about the Medicare supplement plan, which is the Medigap plan. What's great about these is there's no networks. There's no referrals. There's over a million physicians and providers available. So anyone that you want to go ahead and seek medical coverage from, you can go ahead and see them. So they're great for that. And then they're great for travel as well. Like I mentioned before, I'm from the Boston area. A lot of folks like to, you know, get out of the Northeast, go to sunny Florida, whatever, in the winter. The Medigap plans would travel with them as well for coverage because, again, it's, we're not dealing with networks. So they're great for that. The other nice thing I want to talk about is the plans being standardized. So there's 10 plans to choose from. And by standardized, I mean that, you know, they all have different coverages that they include and they go from plan A to plan N. But say you decide plan G is best for you. It doesn't matter if you go through, you know, Blue Cross or Aetna or Cigna. The coverage on plan G is going to stay the same. At that point, you would just shop, you know, who's going to give it to you for the cheapest. You would just, you know, shop all those different ones. But the Medigap plans, you know, hence the name, are really meant to supplement what original Medicare doesn't cover. So a lot of the different plans, Bruce, will cover, Mm -hmm. you know, the different deductibles. Let's go back to that broken knee example that we talked about, you know, that $1,600 that I was paying for my overnights to stay on part A. And that $1,600 is only a a 60-day benefit period. So if I do that past 60 days, that person would be paying another 1600 I mean, that can be expensive. Right. But if I have a, you know, a lot of the Medigap plans are going to pick up that cost because now I'm paying into the Medigap plan to, again, supplement that. So, you know, for everyone, it's different and they can shop at different plans, you know, more expensive, cheaper, all of that. But that's, you know, essentially that's how the Medigap plans would work. And like any sort of insurance product, they're going to be, Based on how old someone is, you know, zip code, gender, tobacco use, you know, things like that. They're typically cheaper in these areas where there's less retirees and, you know, the rates are more expensive in these areas where there's more retirees. So, you know, all that makes sense. But what I wanted to talk about next is you asked me about cost. And I know I've been throwing a lot of dollar amounts around. Let's put this together for folks where they would go with original Medicare A and B. They're going to get a Medigap plan, and then they're going to have a Part D plan for those medications. Let's talk about that. 
And let's assume someone has the 10 year work history. So part of the annual cost them nothing. Again, that part B premiums, $164.90 a month. Let's take the national average for part D at $31 and 50 cents a month. And then, you know, a plan G coverage is about $120 a month as well. So, you know, for about $320 to $350 a month, right, give or take, mm-hmm. someone, you know, a retiree would have a really, you know, strong medical coverage for them. So it'd be 320 to 350. And then Northeast for me, that's probably close, a little closer to 400. But, but again, that's, it's the more expensive route, a lot of coverage you get, and there's a lot less out of pocket after that. Okay. Mm-hmm. But moving on from that too, I really want to talk about something that's so important, Bruce. And it's often when I present this, I say this, this is often one of the most important things that I want to tell everyone is that when you enroll in Medicare part B, the clock begins to tick on this one-time six-month window that folks have to enroll in a Medigap plan without any health questions. So what I mean by that is if we have folks that have you know, Parkinson's or cancer and need chemotherapy, chances are they're going to absolutely need a Medigap plan to help pay for that. And as long as they do so within six months enrolling in Part B, they will not be denied coverage because of health questions, okay? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that further down the road, someone can't get a Medigap plan. What it means is that they miss that, and again, that's only one time. If they miss that one-time six-month window, then they're going to have to go through underwriting. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the insurance company is going to do a two- to five-year look back, and if someone has underlying health conditions, you know, chances are they won't get the Medigap coverage. So again, it's so important to know that when folks enroll on part B, that's when that six month window clock begins okay. to tick. Okay. And then the other thing I, you know, before we move on to the Medicare Advantage plans, you just, you know, folks knowing that if they want to go this route of Medigap plans, we talked about, you know, plans being standardized so they could just shop the different insurance companies. Know that once you have a plan and if someone was to become sick, they can't, you know, deny you coverage of renewing that they're guaranteed renewable and the benefits don't change every year. Unlike a Medicare Advantage plans, the benefits stay the same. Okay. The premiums could change. In fact, they probably would change, but what folks get, that's not going to change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So lastly on this, again, because I really want to take a, you know, some time to talk about the Medicare Advantage plans, is really just talk about the different stages of Part D. And I like to do so because if Medicare isn't confusing enough, Part D has four different stages on what it's going to cost folks. Okay. And the first stage is your deductible. So that's going to depend on your plan. And after you meet that, you move on to what's called the initial coverage period. That's the period most folks stay in. But then after that is something called the coverage gap. And then after someone fulfills that, they would move into something called catastrophic coverage. So if we look a little deeper into that, the max deductible for 2023 is $505, okay? That's gonna depend on the plan you have, but that's the max deductible. After someone hits that, they move into the initial coverage period, which is when them and their insurance company, okay, the combination of both pay $4,660. At that point, someone moves into what's called the coverage gap, and then they're gonna be paying up to 25% of cost out of pocket until it reaches $7,400, okay, in a year. And that's no longer us in the insurance company, that's just one individual. So Part D can get really expensive. And if someone was, you know, really had high medical bills, moved into the catastrophic coverage phase after they fulfilled the $7,400, then they would be basically paying 5% a month and the insurance company would be paying 95% of that. So I like to say that that's a, a bit of a doomsday scenario 
And with the Inflation Reduction Act that most people know passed last year by President Biden, it is really, you know, we could argue how much that act is going to reduce inflation, but I think we can all agree on it being fantastic to make hard to just more affordable for folks. So what they did is they outlined a four-year window. You know, each year they're going to tackle a couple of things that just make it more affordable. And the first one, in this year, they're making, you know, Part D vaccines and now covered at 100%. So you might hear that and say, wait a minute, you said, you know, Part B is covered 100% for all the vaccines. That's true, but some of them fell through the cracks, such as shingles was not covered. You know, folks had to pay for that last year and now it's covered. Insulin co-pays are going to be $35 an injection, no matter which of the four phases you're in, okay? Mm-hmm. Next year, they're doing away with that catastrophic phase I talked about. So that's gone, which is good. And they're going to impose a cap on how much insurance companies can raise these premiums. The max on that's 6%, okay? So that's 2024. 2025 is a huge year because what the government's going to do that year is impose an annual cap on party spending to $2,000, so think about what I just told you before as it stands today with the four different phases, right? All that. 2025, that's all going away. And it's going to be $2,000 annual cap, which I think is great. And then 2026 and beyond, the government's really just going to start to work with these big pharma companies and make the medications that much more affordable for folks, which is great. So what I want to do now is shut the book on that. You asked me about costs, and that's one option, Bruce. So mm-hmm. folks can go with original Medicare A and B, right? They can get the Medigap plan, and they can get the Part D for medication. That's one option. Next, we're going to talk about the other option they have, and I think this confuses a lot of folks, and it's the Medicare Advantage plans. So all the commercials on TV, or most of the commercials that you see with you know George Foreman and Joe Namath and all that, the telemarketer calls, the mailings, <laughs> all of that. Love those commercials. You love it, right. Well, let me ask you this. So remember I said there's 10... Medigap plans. Right. Take a wild guess. Wild guess how many Medicare Advantage plans exist. One. There's about 4,000. Oh, okay. I was off Medicare a little bit. Plans. <laughs> yeah, because, it's because these insurance companies make a ton of money on these. And they're confusing to folks. And these are all the commercials and things like that. So what I want to talk about next is how these work to educate everyone listening so they can make the most educated decision on what's best for them. So the way the Medicare Advantage plans work is you're dealing with networks. So it could be a PPO plan or an HMO plan, right, depending on which one you pick. And you're going to need referrals and you're going to need prior authorization for procedures that you have, okay? So those work in a network fashion. But why folks love these is because there's no health questions to them. A lot of times they include dental and vision and hearing, sometimes gym memberships, so people really like them for that. But you might hear physicians and doctors not loving these, and the reason for that is because of the pre-approval And if we go back to that broken knee example I gave before, the doctor's like, Ron, I want you to go get an MRI. I can't just go get that MRI. I need to work with my Medicare Advantage provider to make sure they're going to pay for that. So you can see how that that could be frustrating to a physician, you know, who gave me that procedure to go and get it done. So the way the Advantage plans work is, you know, you kind of get hit per visit. So meaning, you know, it might be like 20 bucks a doctor visit, $50 to see a specialist, you know, all the different services you kind of pay as you go. But what's really important, I want everyone to walk away with the understanding of something called an out-of-pocket max, because this is the stuff they're not going to tell you on the commercials. So if it's 2023, the max limit on Medicare Advantage out-of-pocket is $8,300. Last year, that was $7,400. So that went up $900 in a year. It doesn't mean every plan has that max limit. It just means the government imposes that for this year. But 
you know, people love these plans because they're cheap and it's like, well, they're, you know, I don't pay any premium, all of that. But say, for an example, someone got cancer in Q4 and needed chemotherapy and that rolled over into Q1 and all of a sudden that person paid, you know, $17,000 in a six month window. That can just be real expensive. So I'm not here to say that the Medicare Advantage plans are bad. What I'm here to say is they're often misunderstood because about 70% of the plans have no premium at all. So folks think they're great and all that stuff. What's important to understand is that, yes, when you're healthy, they're great because they're low premium, they're no premium. But just be aware that when you get, or if someone was to get sick and has high ticket medical costs like dialysis or cancer treatment or you know anything like mm-hmm. that, you're gonna be paying a lot of out-of-pocket costs for that. So if someone wanted to go that route, you know, we really just you know, encourage them to build a rainy day fund, like you would for any sort of unexpected cost. And, you know, the other thing I'd mentioned as well is we talked about the benefits not changing from Medigap. They right. might change from Medicare Advantage plans. So these aren't set it and forget it plans. There's a little bit of homework for everyone to go through if they want to go this route. And what I mean by that is in September, so next month, right, people on Medicare Advantage plans are going to get in the mail something called an annual notice of change. And what that's going to do is it's going to outline for the following year everything that's going to be covered. Some of the coverage could be added to it. Some of the coverage could be taken away from it. But it's important to read that because if someone depends on the coverage that's no longer going to be covered the following year, they could be in a really tough spot, right? So that's why we see in the fall during what's called annual election period, Mm -hmm. from October 15th to December 7th, that's when you see all the commercials, all of that. That's when you can shop your Part C and your Part D. During that fall time period, everyone knows when everyone sees those commercials to allow people the opportunity to find a plan that works you know, best for them. So it's just really important for people, I think, to understand just how vastly different Medicare Advantage plans work from the Medigap plans. Okay. Very interesting. Thank you, Ron. So next, I'd like to discuss a question that we get asked all the time, people working past age 65. I know we touched on this a little bit earlier, but with so many people working past 65 now, how and when do they enroll and do they have to enroll? That's a great question. This is probably the question I get asked the most of, you know, do I have to enroll for Medicare at 65? Can I keep working? How does that work? So what's important to know is the government draws the line at whether you work for a company with 20 or more employees, okay? If your employer has 20 or more employees, the government considers them a large employer, meaning the group coverage you have through them is primary. That's the important thing. So group coverage is primary and Medicare would be secondary. And that's most individuals. Mm -hmm. So what's good about that is you can delay enrolling without penalty at all, okay? Because you work for a large employer. In fact, sometimes you see folks who want to stick with their group coverage and again, pay that FICA taxes. Sometimes you see folks actually enrolling in Medicare only part A as like a secondary safety net because they'll say, hey, you know, if I go in the hospital, I'm past 65 years old, I get all this coverage and it doesn't cost me anything. The caveat to that, Bruce, is when someone enrolls in Medicare, mm-hmm. they can no longer contribute to an HSA oh, or okay. health savings account, okay? So, you know, some people might not contribute to that, so they might not care. And they might say, well, you know, I want my part A coverage, but other folks are trying to, you know, pump as much money as they can into that. So if that's the route someone's taking, you know, they wouldn't be able to enroll. Okay. So that's a large employer. And I want to flip that and talk about a small employer, meaning you work for a company with less than 20 employees. In that case, the government is going to 
define Medicare coverage as primary now. That's the important thing. Now Medicare is primary. Now you're on the hook with them and group coverage is secondary. Folks can still keep the group coverage that they have, but they would need to enroll in Medicare at 65 if they work for a small employer to avoid penalties. What I mean by that is we talked about previously the penalty someone would incur for Part D. Remember that? Mm -hmm. There's actually a penalty for Part B if someone works for a small employer and didn't enroll at 65. So let me give you an example of that. Say you have an electrician and he works for a small employer and he retires at 67, okay? And then he enrolls in Medicare. The government's going to look at him and say, wait a minute, you work for a small employer. You should have enrolled at 65. You didn't. There's a 10% penalty for each year that you should have enrolled and you did not. So in that person's case, two years is going to be a 20% penalty that he's going to pay on top of his Part B premium. Mm -hmm. And that unfortunately does not go away. That sticks with that person forever. So it's just really important. And I think this one's really confused because a lot of times, you know, friends will be at, you know, dinner parties, cocktail parties who say, yeah, you know, you can delay. You don't have to. Probably people are, are true based on them. But it's confusing to know that at 20 is the important thing to know. Right. Okay. Okay. So really, you know, if you have any questions, Bruce, I can wrap up yeah. everything that we talked about high level because I know we covered a lot. So let me, you know, give me a minute to streamline everything that we talked about. And at the beginning, you asked me about the four parts of Medicare. So we know that, you know, there's A, B, C, and D, and we know that A and B, original Medicare individuals get through Social Security, where A is your hospital stay, B is your outpatient. And we know that C and D is not mandatory. That's all through a private insurer. And C, again, is synonymous with a Medicare Advantage plan, where folks will get all the coverage through the Medicare Advantage plan, okay? Mm-hmm. And we remember, we talked about Part B, uh, Part D being the, the drug coverage. Then I want to go over the important gap, because remember that Part B covers 80%, and we're on the hook for that 20% gap. So we talked about the two routes, and the first one that say people can afford it to go this route, and that's where you have the Medicare A and B, Medigap plan on top of it, with a Part D plan. And again, those are going to be a higher premium, so certainly more expensive, but then there's little to no out-of-pocket costs after that. We're not dealing with doctor networks. So that's the first route. And then the second route would be going through the Medicare Advantage plan where folks have, you know, it's much cheaper option, lower premiums, no premiums at all. But then there is a limitation on doctors with dealing with networks and there's more, you know, unexpected costs after that. Right. And then, you know, again, to go over the at work and past 65 is, you know, again, draw the line in that 20 employees. So your company has more than 20 employees. Yes, you can absolutely delay enrolling. There's no penalty for doing that. But if the company has less than 20 employees, they must get parts A, B, and D at that age to avoid penalties moving forward. Okay. okay. Got it. So that was really helpful, Ryan. I learned a lot. I think our listeners will as well. You did a great job of really simplifying a complex area. And obviously, retirees are faced with many important decisions as they prepare for retirement and certainly getting the right Medicare options in place is you know, really critical for a successful retirement. So thank you for that, Ron. It really made a complex area very understandable. Great. Well, you're very welcome. And thanks so much for having me, Bruce. I appreciate the time. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you. And if any of our listeners have questions or, you know, additional resources, where to go for help, feel free to reach out to me. Again, my name is Bruce Lanzer. My phone number is 414-289-3817 
Or you can email me at Bruce, B-R-U-C-E dot Lanzer, L-A-N-S-E-R at UBS.com. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services offers both investment advisory and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, different material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business and that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. UBS Financial Services Incorporated is a subsidiary of UBS AG and member of FINRA and SIPC. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. It does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any specific product or service. UBS does not provide legal or tax advice, and we would recommend listeners to obtain appropriate independent professional advice. Some of the views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Group AG or its affiliates. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. These services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS Group AG and is a member of FINRA and SIPC.